A friend of mine, Craig Brian Larson, tells the story of his wife's employment experience one particular summer at a bank. Uh, The woman came, Mrs. Larson came in to work at this bank and quickly noticed that there was something of a morale problem on the staff. There was an influential manager in the bank, a supervisor there who cast a large and long shadow, and this particular individual had an extremely lackadaisical management style, uh, seemed to not hold a very high sense of work ethic, and fraternized mainly with the youngest members of staff. Uh, Even though he was older, he primarily hung out with the younger members of staff, and there was a lot of joking and kibitzing that went on, and and overall standards in the office were pretty low, and there wasn't a lot of productivity happening there. What made it worse was that this particular supervisor played favorites. Uh, He mainly focused on this group of younger folks. He treated dismissively the other people that worked in the bank, and some people who he didn't take to personally, he made life really miserable for. One of them was a younger woman in her 30s who was a middle manager in this particular bank who had an extremely high work ethic, was very devoted to her job. And every time she would approach this gaggle of his uh, cronies when they were talking, uh, he would cut the conversation off and he'd roll his eyes and there would be smirks exchanged amongst the various uh, people in this circle. And when she walked away again, they would be talking about her and making fun of the way she dressed and so on and so forth. And this went on for uh, some, some weeks. One day, Uh, Craig's wife came into work and noticed within moments of entering that the entire atmosphere of the place had changed. Uh, People were talking civilly and professionally and kindly towards each other, and everybody was really deeply engaged in the important work of of that bank and she noticed that the that the manager, the supervisor that I've been talking about, was gone. And at his desk was sitting that 30-something young woman, who it turns out had been the undercover boss all along. She'd been promoted into his job already. She had just taken a middle-level position in order to scout out the work environment. And then the day of reality had come. Many of you have heard stories like this one, I think, perhaps because there's a very popular reality show on right now called Undercover Boss, in which these CEOs take positions, uh, hidden positions in lower levels of their organizations in order to, to, to get to know what's really going on there. And when they are finally revealed for who they are, there's a huge aha and a surprise for everybody all around. Those shows and that story I've just told you is, in a sense, simply a reminder, a pointer, in a sense, to what is the greatest secret service story of all time. And it is the one that we're looking at here today in the verses of Matthew chapter 17, and I invite you to visit those verses again with me today. When we meet them in Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, the senior leadership team of the disciples of Jesus, are pretty sure they know just about as much as they need to know about their boss, their co-worker, Jesus. They, they know he's an extraordinary teacher. 
they are well aware that he is an extremely impressive healer. They are confident that he is a very charismatic leader. And in the chapter that immediately precedes this one, Matthew chapter 16, Peter has even ventured the guess that Jesus may be the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the person who is going to bring about the political revolution that Israel is waiting for, looking for, to free them from the bonds of Rome and allow them to go on into a new golden era, not seen since the time of King David. None of them, however, fully get at this particular moment even what Peter was driving towards. Even Peter himself doesn't fully understand what it means when he says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. But the cover on that reality is about to come off. The Bible says that Jesus led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Now, you need to understand that just that act of taking people up on a mountainside would have been instructive. It should have set off some alarm bells, some warning lights of meaning to the disciples because they had already seen Jesus do some of his most significant work on the mountaintop. Jesus had given his most phenomenal sermon on the mount, uh, displaying and describing the nature of the kingdom of God into which People were being called. But there was a much longer history of mountaintop moments that were profoundly significant in the life of Israel that that they could easily have remembered, these disciples, that would have quickened their sense of something significant about to happen. It was, for example, at the summit of Mount Sinai, where God chose to descend upon Moses in this mysterious cloud that covered the summit of the mountain and revealed his glory to Moses like a consuming fire and gave to Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, that displayed the character of God that would actually, interestingly enough, become the framework that Jesus would later use in his Sermon on the Mount, a recapitulation, a refilling of the law with its intended meaning. It was also in the shadow of the holy mountain that Israel had been instructed to erect the tabernacle. They were a people on the move. They were traveling without a temple, no fixed location. They're in the wilderness. God gives them instructions to set up a tent of meeting. And whenever they stop for the night, they erect this particular tent in their camp. And over that tent, the scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 40, God descends again in a cloud, a mysterious cloud signifying his presence and fills the interior of the tabernacle with his glory, we're told, with the brilliance of his light and his holiness. It was also atop another mountain, Mount Carmel, now further north in Israel, that God had come down once again with fire and smoke, right, with cloud and, and brilliance, to, to demonstrate to Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, and to the gathered prophets of Baal, servants of another, of a, le, of a lesser uh, uh, God, to demonstrate that God was the true God, the one worthy of worship. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we read that story. Now, here it is on another mountaintop that these famous historical events 
are being seen for what they ultimately were. Each of those events I've just described were significant in themselves. But they were also signposts. They were pointing Israel towards a consummation, towards a greater event that these would now be almost mosaic pieces of in a larger picture of who God was and what God intended. So we go on in the story. Matthew 17 says that as Peter, James, and John reached the summit, there Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light itself. And the Greek word for transfigured here is the one from which we get our word metamorphosis. As in the process by which the worm becomes a butterfly. Raise your hand if you remember watching that experiment as a kid. Right? Now I think back to the uh, one of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time, Ron Howard's movie, Cocoon, when I hear the word metamorphosis. And I don't know how many of you have seen the film, but I'll briefly sketch its, its relevance to you in these terms. This is a story in which this group of older folks in a retirement community suddenly encounter a very attractive group of younger people who move in to an estate next door. These people are compelling beings. And the older people find themselves drawn to these younger people who remind them, I guess, of what their glory days used to be. And they find themselves just feeling more vital in the presence of these younger persons. Well, one day, the older folks are spying on these younger persons when, to their absolute shock and amazement, the young people peel off their flesh suits revealing themselves to be aliens. And underneath the flesh is nothing but the most spectacular, brilliant energy and light. And the older folks are just awestruck and mesmerized by it. I think this is something of what Peter, James, and John got to see when suddenly Jesus metamorphosized right in front of them, transfigured right in front of them. And yet, and they were suddenly aware in the sense that Jesus was, was not just a simply an attractive being, you know, a great teacher and leader and, and all of those things, a healer. Jesus was, in fact, a different kind of being, an alien sort of, of being, of staggering power and greater glory than they had any idea of up to this particular point. And yet the unveiling goes further still. Just then, this is verse 3, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. The greatest lawgiver, the greatest prophet of ancient Israel suddenly appear there in the glow of this glory and they're seen talking with Jesus as if they are familiar friends. Because they are. Because they are. It is now clear, at least to anybody up there on the top of the mountain paying attention, that, that Jesus is more than just an alien being. He is the particular being who was there on the top of Mount Sinai. With Moses, 
right? Who showed himself to Moses long ago. He was the particular being who revealed himself to Elijah at Mount Carmel. He was the particular being in whose splendid presence these two old saints have been dwelling for centuries now at that infinite summit beyond the stars that we call heaven. Jesus is the author of the law given to Moses. Jesus Jesus is the spirit behind the prophets, the spirit that spoke through guys like Elijah. Jesus is the fulfillment, in a sense, of the law and the prophets and the totality of Israel's history. He is the divine word that filled the tabernacle with glory in the wilderness. And John will later capture this reality beautifully in the 14th verse of the first chapter, the prologue of his gospel, and when he says, which he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Though what you can't see there is the Greek actually says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Set up his tent, filled it with glory, right in our midst, and we have beheld his glory, says John at the end of 14. Glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Peter, James, and John are speechless before the wonder of the power and the glory of Jesus. When is the last time you were. When is the last time that you caught a glimpse of his glory? When you were awestruck, silent before the wonder of who Jesus fully is. Maybe you're in a place of worship when that sense of glory just washes over you. I feel it sometimes. We're singing the hallelujah chorus, and the glory just washes over me, and I feel enraptured with a sense of the wonder of his beauty and his goodness. Maybe you're standing before the miracle or the magnificence of God's creation. You're there looking out across the Grand Canyon, the vastness of a starry sky, the the tiny feet and toes of a newborn child. Maybe you're struck by the creation in this way and you sense the glory of God in these things. Sometimes you may find yourself pierced by his word. You realize that word's meant for me. I needed this. God is stirring in me. He's birthing something new in me. He's transforming me with his word. And you don't in these moments want it to end, do you? You don't, you don't want it to stop. You, you, don't, you don't want to go back to regular life. You don't want the fire, the cloud, the goodness and glory of God to leave you. You want to stay up there on that mountaintop for as long as you possibly can. And if you've ever felt that, I know I felt that, then the, the sentiment of Peter here is speaking for us. Peter says to Jesus, verse 4, Lord, It's good for us to be here. (laughs) I love that simplicity of that. Man, this is really good. (laughs) Oh, oh, this is what goodness is all about. It's good to be here. 
Let's not let this end. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, and we can just sort of camp out here. You know, maybe for a couple of years. It'll be good. That's what Peter's basically saying. I understand his desire. The truth, however, is we don't get to control or contain the glory of God. We just don't get to do it. Sometimes people talk as if we could. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the main business of a lot of religions is trying to make us think that if we hang around with them, then we'll have that glory all the time. We'll experience it moment by moment all the time. If you just pray or you fast in this way, if you just read the Bible every single day, if you just sacrifice or you give more, or if you just go to that particular awesome church or you read that real book, that's book that changed my life, or if you listen to that particular speaker on the radio or the TV or whatever it may be, you can live in a continual state of ecstatic communion with God. You can have health and wealth and spiritual prosperity everywhere you go all the time. If you just do this or do that, you can box the glory of God for yourself and take it with you everywhere. Now don't get me wrong here because faithfulness to God and The practice of these spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting and all these other things, they're very, very important. They, They are the steps by which we venture toward the mountain and up the mountainside. Okay? They're very they're part of that soul training that helps us reach the heights where the glory becomes clearer to us. But there is no permanent tent, no permanent shelter. Uh, that we can rely on, where we can always have and always feel the intensity of these mountaintop moments. And if you go back and you read the stories of the great heroes of the Old Testament, including Moses and Elijah, or you read through the life of the apostles, then the disciples, of Mary, Peter, James, John, Paul, all of those folks, or you research the writings of the mystics and the great saints of church history, you'll see that While they had these mountaintop moments, they spent most of their time in the valley. You know, they spent most of their time down the mountainside in places where they wished for more of that feeling, but had to trust that God was with them in the day-to-day, even when the feeling wasn't so intense. They viewed these moments that God gave them of of absolute clarity about his presence as just what they are, a gift, precious, marvelous gifts of his grace, glimpses of his glory, a glory that we are going to get to see one day, fully and forever. That's our future. We're going to one day be on the mountaintop forever. That's the good news. And he gives us these glimpses to, to prepare us for that day, to give us what we need to keep traveling through the journey in the wilderness where we are. I think we need to pray and, and, and pray for and welcome these deeper encounters with God, even though they won't be the norm. We can pray for them for two particular reasons. The first reason is because without these glimpses of glory, 
uh, we will tend to accept a much smaller Jesus. Without these transfiguration moments, we're going to tend to settle for or even prefer perhaps what I call a pocket-sized Jesus. I came across a, a marvelous blog recently on the internet by a guy named Kevin DeYoung that was just so particularly good on this subject that I want to share it extensively here with you this morning. DeYoung reminds us that not every Jesus is the real Jesus. Not every Jesus that gets presented to us or that we hold on to is actually the real Jesus. For example, writes DeYoung, there's the Republican Jesus who is against tax increases and activist judges for family values and for owning firearms. That's what this Jesus is really passionate about. There's Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart for increasing our carbon footprint and for making so much money. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are, and reminds us not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to a lot of film festivals. (laughs) There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for those people who are not as open-minded as you are. There's touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls in the favor of the faithful ones, the serious prayer warriors. There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. Then there's gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild all the time with high cheekbones, flowing hair, walks around barefoot, wears a sash, and looks very German. (laughs) Then there's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance and imagines a world without religion and helps us remember that all you need is love. That's Beatles Jesus. There's Yuppie Jesus, too, who encourages us to reach our full potential and reach for the stars and at some point buy a boat. And, you know, just a modest, respectable boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, who does not like churches particularly or pastors or priests or doctrine and who would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, who's good for Christmas specials and greeting cards and bad sermons and inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo and stick it to the man and blame things on the system. There's guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and who will help you find your center. And there's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. Who just is sweet on you. And there's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people and change the planet and become the best version of you. Have you met the pocket-sized Jesus? Have you got them in your pocket?
so he can go with you anywhere? So he can tabernacle with you on your schedule? But then there's the real Jesus. There's the one that Peter, James, and John met on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is not just another prophet, writes De Young. He's not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker, but the one they had been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity to everything that holds us captive. He's the one who is the goal, the, the object of the Mosaic law. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He's the one who will establish God's reign and rule. He's the one to heal the sick and give sight to the blind of every kind and freedom to the captives and proclaim good news to the poor. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world that's the root of all the problems that we have. This Christ, writes De Young, is not a reflection of the current mood of our culture. It is not a projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and our God. He is the Father's Son, the Savior of the world, the substitute for our sins. He is more loving, more holy, more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. This is the real Jesus. I said that there were two reasons to pray for glimpses of his glory. The first is to increase the likelihood that we will follow the real Jesus instead of some pocket-sized version we carry with us so he will follow us. You get that? Here's the second reason. The second reason is because only the power and glory of the real Jesus can save us, can change us, can make us what we're created to be. I came across a a fascinating account recently uh, written by Jacob Needleman who for many years was a professor of philosophy at Harvard. And back in 1975, Needleman had the privilege of attending the launch of Apollo 17. And he wrote about it very eloquently. It was a night launch, he said, and there were hundreds of cynical reporters all over the lawn. Remember, this is Apollo 17. We've seen a lot of launches by this time. And all the reporters are there out across the lawn and they're pounding beers and they're wisecracking and they're waiting for this 35-story high rocket. Now just start to take that in, okay? A 35-story rocket ship right here. Imagine this in front of you. Well, the countdown came, writes Needleman, and then the launch. And the first thing you see is this extraordinary light, right? You see all of this cloud and this incredible light. And it's just at the limit of what you can actually bear to even look at. Everything is suddenly illuminated with this light. It becomes almost see-through in a sense. The light is just so Incredibly brilliant and glorious. And then comes this thing, this 
story thing rising up into the air in total silence. Because it takes a few seconds for the sound to get to you. And then boom, this explosive sound that vibrates through every molecule of your body and just seems to almost realign you at the core to the glory of what it's doing. And the sense of wonder it fills everyone in the whole place, writes Needleman. You can practically hear jaws dropping as, as people just watch this massive thing going up and up and up and up. And then all of a sudden the first stage ignites like this beautiful blue flame and it becomes a star and you realize there are people on that thing and then there's total silence again and Needleman concludes his account people just get up quietly helping each other up from the ground. And, and they're kind to each other, right? This boisterous, half-drunk group of people, they're turning now. They're, they're kind to each other. They're opening the doors for each other. They're looking at one another, speaking kindly and with interest toward one another. These were suddenly Moral people, writes Needleman. Suddenly they, they, they were more moral because of the sense of wonder, because of the experience of wonder, because of the encounter with glory that had made them who they were meant to be. One day, the boss is going to rise up, the Bible says. And it will be more than 35 stories of him. <laughs> He's going to rise up. He'll no longer be under cover. And all the people were told by Jesus himself, all the people at that time will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And like Peter and James and John, we're going to see him fully transfigured in all of his power and his goodness. And at that time, every jaw on planet earth will drop. I promise you, no matter what their religious background has been, their jaws are just going to all drop before the glory of who he is. And the Bible says every knee is going to involuntarily just bow in, in awestruck wonder. And every tongue will confess that Jesus, it turns out, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in awestruck wonder, in abject wonder and praise, all of the creation, right down to the molecular level, 
the atomic level, the subatomic level will realign itself to the moral beauty and the utter majesty of this magnificent being. In the meantime, we walk in the valley, okay? We've got these glimpses to remind us of what's coming, of who's really at work in the simple things of the faith. We're privileged to have these moments on the mountaintop when it's just him and us alone, when we know in deeper measure there's no one more worthy of our devotion than he. That there's no reason to fear, as Jesus says in this text, fear not, be not afraid, get up, it's okay. There's no reason to fear anything we're going to face because he's going down the mountain with us. He's going to be with us. He's more capable of saving us and of setting this world right than anyone else is. So when he says to us, as he says today, get up and go out there, don't be afraid, we can walk down the mountainside. We can go back out into this week ahead, freshly filled with wonder and gratitude that we are his and that he is with us to the very close of this age. And my prayer is that you've caught just a glimpse of that beautiful, wonderful, greater reality as we've met with him today. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord God, that you are with us always. Grant us glimpses of your glory that we may continue to walk with you aright and follow where you lead until that coming day when the earth will be filled with your glory and goodness as the waters cover the sea. Through Christ we pray. Amen.